All right, welcome to Play the Music, our podcast in association with Fan Label, the revolutionary new app that allows you to play fantasy sports style contests where you open up a virtual record label, you sign real world artists, and as they perform in the real world commercially based on streams of their songs, you move up and down a leaderboard either globally or against your friends, win really cool prizes, earn virtual royalties. You can spend in the marketplace to buy really cool stuff in lieu of cash. So check it out, Fan Label. It's a new way to engage with music and rich. And yeah, and do you have the golden ear or not? You will know fast if you start playing Fan Label. Can you really pick a hit song? That's it. And you know, the really cool thing about music, music, of course, is art. And, you know, just when you think you've got it all figured out, along comes, uh, you know, a Lil Nas song that, you know, is like, what? What is that? You know, where'd that come from? Just, you never know. You never know. And it's one thing for you, Jeff, to never know or (laughs) me to never know. But the fact is we've had so many guests on our podcast who are true authorities in the space. And they would admit, too, it's really an art form to be able to pick that hit song. But there are aspects of what make for a hit, including, you know, the promotional machine behind it, the social environment that you create as an artist and drum up to drive streaming. So a lot of factors go into it these days. A lot of factors. And actually, I mean, as we tee up the show, we say, you never know, you never know. Well, actually, some things you do know. I mean, there are songs that when you when you hear them right away, you say, that's a hit. So there are those, you know, those circumstances where things are obvious, good or bad, you know, when a song is likely not a hit. But then there's all these surprises that pop up every now and then. And that's the fun of it. That's the joy of it. That's what music discovery is all about. And you get a chance to call what's a hit and what's not. And that's really cool. And test your own ears. You said, all right, now, Rich, on today's show, we're going to move beyond just picking music. We're going to focus on really learning about how we talk about songs becoming commercially successful. Well, How does that happen? How does the money flow? Who gets what piece, what cut, who pays, uh, and so on and so on. We're going to break it all down on today's episode of Play the Music and learn about how the money flows in the music business. We're also going to get a chance to review our Play the Music contest from last week where we pick the one out of five that we think will stream the most. We'll check in on how we're all doing, faring on the leaderboard. And then we'll uh, pick some new music this week out of our new Fan Label 5 contest. And we'll hear from Mick Breggy on new features in the app and things to look forward to, things to look out for in Fan Label. Great show ahead. Rich, always great to be with you. Let's do it. Let's do it indeed. Let's get right into it. We've got a gentleman who is a real expert, and he's going to break down for us, you know, really how the money flows in the music business down to ultimately the artists behind the songs. And remember, Jeff, we need to say how the money flows up to the artist, right? They're at the top of this, or they should be. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's really cool. That's a good way to look at it. It's an even better way to look at it. How does the money flow up? So there we go. George Howard, you chimed in for a second. You like it. George, welcome to Play the Music. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so George, you're a professor of uh, music business management at the Berkeley College of Music. Doesn't get any better than that. You're also the author of the book called Everything in Its Right Place. And that really has to do with how blockchain technology will lead to a more transparent music industry. We want to touch on blockchain, but the primary area of focus today is to really, again, understand how the money flows. So let's start with where it all begins. An artist has a song... Record companies have certain rights, publishers have certain rights, songwriters have certain rights, but in order for them to get anything, it all starts with a consumer consuming the music. 
And there are various places consumers tap in. George, kind of lay it out for us, if you will. Sure. You know, the landscape has shifted, you know, quite dramatically since roughly 2011, which is when Spotify entered the U.S. market. But I loved the comment about, you know, flowing up or at least putting the, the, the players in the right kind of categorizations for whatever reason. And I, and I have my own opinions on this, but art generally and certainly music has been kind of devalued in the consumer's eyes. And that that's no fault of the consumer, but it is a very um, calculated kind of move on the part of certain certain industry players. But, you know, I, I don't know how granular you want to get, but generally the way that it works is when a song is created, there are two copyrights that emerge at inception. And you don't need to register the work or mail it to yourself or any of those things that you, you get bad information about on the Internet. Our United States Copyright Code lays forth that the moment an original work of authorship is fixed, meaning written down or recorded in a tangible form, copyright uh, accrues to the creator of that work. Um, we can we can sort of debate about where, where the line is between originality and lack of originality. And, and unfortunately, there have been some court cases of late that really confuse that, most notably the Blurred Lines case and then this recent Katy Perry case. But assuming that you write a work that is original, you are the owner of the copyright to that song. Now, George, let's stop right there because that's all very interesting that you were about to go on to the next thing. I just want to ask you, you said, you know, mailing it to yourself in the mail and so on really is kind of irrelevant. But you do have to, not only does it have to be original, you have to prove that you, in fact, did codify the work, that you wrote it down, that you, right? I mean, so how do you do well, that? Well, that's what I said. You, f- you fix it in a tangible medium. Right. So what does that mean? What does that mean in practical terms? Sure. It could be anything from playing it into your iPhone or notating it out. It doesn't have to be scored like you know, it, you do it in tab form or whatever. You just—I'm a copyright attorney as well, so I mean, the, the the idea expression dynamic is the one that you have to get your head around. You can't copyright an idea; you copyright right. the expression of the idea. So, but just playing it into your iPhone satisfies the the requirement of fixation. Or if I write it down, I do need to prove that I wrote it down on a certain date. I could have written it down a year ago. I could write it down today. Yes, and that's where that notion of poor man's copyright comes into play. Poor man's copyright was the act of mailing something to yourself yeah. in order to get a, get a postmark date right. stamp on it. Right. It's evidentiary. I mean, it doesn't hurt. Right. The, the way that you most sort of dispositively prove a date would be to register the work with the copyright office. Mm-hmm. The other reason you register work with the copyright office is because unless and until you do, you can't bring suit for infringement. But that does not mean that you don't get the rights. And there are six enumerated rights in Section 106 of the Copyright Code that immediately accrue to the rights holder. Five to the copyright holder of the song itself, the person that wrote the melody and the lyric, and then five with one difference to the person who actually made the recording of the work, the rendition. So you have a copyright known as the composition, which is the melody and lyric, and then you have the copyright known as the musical work, which would be the recording or the rendition of the work. So for instance, when Dolly Parton wrote, I will always love you, she is the holder of the copyright to the composition, she and her publisher. And then when Whitney Houston did a rendition of that, Arista Records was the holder, uh, is the holder of the copyright to the sound recording. Whitney Houston receives a royalty from Arista Records for the exploitation of that sound recording. 
Dolly Parton also receives a royalty when Whitney Houston's song is, for instance, played on the radio or sold as a, a download or a stream, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's really, that breaks it down nicely. And you, did you say it was five and five that split equally between the... So I can enumerate them very quickly. I'll tell you the ones that both the copyright holder of the composition and the copyright holder of the sound recording have in common, and then I'll talk about the sure. differences. They both have a right of reproduction, distribution, display, derivatives, which would be things like translations or samples, and then things go a little bit hairy. You have the right of public performance, which is a broadcast on the radio. Public performance would also be a live show, music being played in a, in a restaurant, etc. That's public performance. In the United States, only the copyright holder for the composition has an enumerated right of public performance. The copyright holder of the sound recording does not. So, for instance, when Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You is played on terrestrial radio in the United States, Dolly Parton gets paid. Whitney Houston and Arista Records do not. In the rest of the world, both parties, Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston, would. So, th so that's an outlier. And then the other outlier is in the last 20 years or so, a new right was codified called a right of public performance in digital transmission for the sound recording which then sort of fixes that anomaly that I just talked about. So when I Will Always Love You is streamed on Pandora, then yeah. both Dolly Parton as the writer gets paid, but also so too do Arista Records and Whitney Houston. And that kind of outlier has caused more trouble and problems in kind of global music industry than you can even imagine. But those are the rights. Jeff, this is a real education from the fire hose, as it were. It gets even more complicated than that in the sense that there is ownership or rights of the publishers as well. Well, no. I mean, so again, if you think of those two copyrights on the composition side, the person who creates the work, the one who writes the melody and the lyric, they, so Dolly Parton in my example, mm -hmm. at the moment of inception, she controls all of those rights unless and until she assigns any of them to a publisher. And unless and until you assign your, your work to a publisher, you are your own publisher. So if there's some new writer out there and she writes a song, she gets all of those rights and she is her own publisher. And similarly, if she records that song, she has the right to the copyright of the sound recording and all of the benefits and remedies. And unless and until she assigns that right to a label, she is her own label. Gotcha. So that's great. That lays out that part of it at the origination of the asset and how those rights are assigned and, and so on. But now the reason I said let's go downstream and follow the money is because it starts for me. I mean, I guess you can look at this both ways. But the way I'm trying to look at it is at some point, a consumer consumes, if you will, the song. Correct. Creating a commerce event. And, you know, if we could, and, and no, don't mean this in any pejorative sense whatsoever about the flowing downstream to the artist, but if we start with the consumer in that commerce event, the consumption of the music, just let's follow the money now, ultimately down to the ultimate stakeholders. Sure. And I laid it out the way I did intentionally because it's so imperative for your listeners who I assume are, are seeking this information to understand that all of that downstream, upstream money or whatever flows based upon those rights that I enumerated. Yes. There's nothing else. That's so right. when you think about how you're going to make money in the music industry, there's really nothing else, no other way to make money than through one of those exclusive rights that you as a writer and or a performer, performer of a song right. get. Right. So, I mean, I can keep tracking it with Dolly Parton if that's helpful. Sure. 
Yeah, that's good. So that one particular song, I Will Always Love You. So that goes up on Spotify, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. How does it get on Spotify? Unless you are assigned to a label, you're not going to have a direct relationship with Spotify. So you go through something known as an aggregator. There are a number of them. I was one of the co-founders of a popular one called TuneCore, but there there are others out there, DistroKid, CD Baby, etc., one way or the other, the song finds its way up onto one of what's known as the DSPs, which would be mm-hmm. Spotify, Tidal, Deezer, Apple Music, etc. Digital streaming platform. Correct. Yep. And so at that point, there are two rights now that are being evoked when one of those songs are streamed. And as I, as I mentioned, there's the copyright for the, the composition, which is held by Dolly Parton, and then the copyright. And for this example, let's just say that it, it was Whitney's version of the song that's on Spotify, right? So now you've got the right of the sound recording. Each of those parties have exclusive rights for reproduction and distribution. When Spotify streams a song, downstream, I stream a song. I stream I Will Always Love You as yep. performed by, by Whitney Houston a reproduction and distribution is taking place. Absent licenses being in place, then Spotify and potentially others are prima facie infringing. So the payment is triggered through those licenses. So when Spotify came to the United States in 2011, they went to all the labels and said, hey, we really want your catalog in our service. The labels said, okay, but you're going to have to pay us every time you stream one of our sound recordings, one of our masters. You're also going to give us um, labels, a, a piece of the of the company equity in, in, in Spotify. So what Spotify did was they made a deal so that when they reproduced and distributed I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, Arista Records gets a rate. And that rate was negotiated between Spotify and Arista Records at the time. And that rate is, as I say, negotiated. At this point, it's become sort of codified where all the labels have basically the same per stream rate, but it is a negotiated rate. So the song is streamed. In theory, Whitney Houston, Arista Record would get a payment based on the amount of revenue that that Spotify brings in and the rate that has been negotiated. It doesn't work that way. They use a modeling, not measuring formula that's pretty complicated. But just in terms of how the money flows, that's how the performer would get paid. They would get a royalty for every time a song is is streamed on Spotify. Let me ask you, George, just really quickly. Sorry, I just want to understand. Is every song get the same amount? No. And that's problematic. And that's why, I, you know, I've written the book about the blockchain and it should. Right. You would think it would. But just in the same way, when a song is played on radio or when a song is played on TV, it's a modeled, not measured formula. In other words, they're not looking at, okay, this was played 10 times, so you should get paid 10 times some coefficient, some multiplier. Mm -hmm. It's a convoluted, opaque mess, and it distinctly benefits the more popular performers, whatever the opposite of benefits is, the newer emerging artists. So in other words, the more established artists and labels are disproportionately compensated for their work. But to complicate things, there's also a payment obviously due to Dolly Parton. She wrote the song, and just because she's not performing it, if that song is being streamed on Spotify, there is again that reproduction and distribution, which are exclusive rights to Dolly Parton as the writer, so she has to get paid too. For whatever reason, our government has decided that they 
uh, and your representatives should set the rate that songwriters are paid when their songs are used in certain manners. So there is a cap. There's a maximum amount that has to be paid out for reproduction and distribution to songwriters, whether it's through a, a physical sale or a download or a stream. And that's known as a mechanical royalty. The rate that is paid out by the DSPs to the songwriter side is vastly lower than is paid out to the performer side. So Dolly will get much less from Spotify than Whitney will when that song or Arista Records will when that song is streamed on Spotify. And that's true of all of the DSPs, whether it's Apple Music, Tidal, Deezer, etc. And so, you know, that's how a song, that's how an artist or a songwriter, or in some cases, what they're one and the same. That's how money is made when you're a Dolly Parton or a Whitney Houston, as it used to be. Now, there are also, though, artists everywhere trying to break, trying to get their music heard. You mentioned this is a system that favors the bigger artists as opposed to the breaking artists, uh, the emerging artists. How does it work, or how should artists who are trying to make it in this new world how should they think about getting their music out there and making money from that music? And what are their options? So it's, I mean, it's a, a really different question, right? I mean, but just to be clear, that flow of money that I just outlined for Dolly Parton and, and Arista Records and Whitney Houston is exactly the same as it is to an emerging artist. So if some Technically, 16-year-old... Right, it's designed well, that no, way. No, the, yeah. no, the process is exactly the same. The process. The payouts will be different. And the, and the rights are the same. If some 16-year-old... right person covers I Will Always Love You, it would be exactly the same way. Or some 16-year-old person writes her own song and, and puts it up on the DSP. It's exactly the same payout and way. Uh, in that case, TuneCore or CD Baby would negotiate with Spotify on the sound recording side. And, and on the publishing side, it's, again, that governmental rate that's set. So it's, it's, it, it doesn't matter if you're Dolly Parton or just some new well, emerging artist. That's the way it works. Unfortunately, they're, they're not paying out on a pro rata equal share. They're paying out on this kind of weird formulaic modeled system. But the law remains the same no matter if you're Dolly Parton or a new artist. But from a practical standpoint, to break it down, I mean, there's also the fact that, you know, as an emerging artist, I've got to somehow get noticed and get heard. Sure. Right. But as I said, that's I mean, a different question. Right. That's a different so, question. I understand. So the biggest consumption provider of music by far and away is YouTube. In a sort of horrifying way, YouTube is also the music provider, for lack of a better word, that pays the least amount to artists, right? So, I mean, they don't get talked about nearly enough. We're, everybody's talking about Spotify and everything else. But the amount of music that is consumed by Spotify is dwarfed by what is by YouTube, and yet YouTube pays the least amount. So if you're a new artist, I mean, there's all sorts of ways, I suppose, that you want to try to start building your career. For me, the only way that any artist ever builds a career is to go out and begin playing regionally and build what's known as a, a net promoter score. Net promoter score is just the, the, the score that's attributed to how likely somebody who sees you play is to tell their friend, right? So every artist who has ever succeeded has succeeded for exactly the same reason. Someone who heard their music told their friends about it, right? So if I'm a new artist, I'm going to be playing locally and, and counting the number of new faces that come see me because unless and until some new faces show up, either my music isn't yet up to snuff or I'm not putting it in front of the right people. And until that happens, you know, nothing else is going to happen. And you can use that same sort of approach by putting songs up onto YouTube or SoundCloud. And, you know, you sure you should get compensated 
via SoundCloud or YouTube when your works are streamed. The money is going to be de minimis at best, but you can use them as ways to see if your net promoter score is being built by looking at if people are sharing your tracks on YouTube or SoundCloud, etc. You can do things like put covers up on YouTube, which is, again, prima facie infringement, right? You're not, you're not allowed to do that by law. You're creating what's known as a synchronization. If I sit down and play a Bob Dylan song and film myself doing it and put it up on YouTube, I am prima facie infringing upon Bob Dylan's exclusive right of reproduction and distribution with a visual element, which is known as a synchronization. But YouTube has come up with this, you know, to them, really amazing system of throwing ads on those videos that get a lot of views, and then they split the ad revenue with the original copyright holder, leaving the performer out. So if I do Masters of War and get a billion views, they're going to throw an ad on it. Bob Dylan's publisher, Bob himself, is going to get ad revenue. YouTube's going to get ad revenue, and I, the person that did the cover, will get nothing. But that's the that's the way these covers and infringing works end up staying up on YouTube, even though they're in violation of the copyright code. Okay, but it can be a very good strategy for kind of building brand equity, right? I mean, a lot of artists put covers up because people search for things. People say, "Oh, I want to hear," you know, no one's saying "Masters of War." I, I want to hear whatever uh, "Bad Guy" by Billie Eilish. I bet there are just a bajillion. Billie Eilish covers on YouTube right now. At a certain point, once they become viewed a lot, then Billie Eilish's publisher gets notified, or and Billie Eilish has the opportunity to either say, take it down, leave it alone, or put an ad on it, at which point I, Billie Eilish, will take the, the publishing money and we'll split it with YouTube. But it can be a promotional vehicle. Well, I'm riveted listening, and uh, clearly this is a masterclass on just exactly how the money flows. It really is. It's really, really amazing. You know, it always fascinates me, George, because let's focus on breaking artists for a second, because the artists who are established, there are lots of people around them that also have, that are stakeholders in the in the music and in the commercial outcome and success of all of this, and things are more process-oriented. But as an emerging artist, you might know your art. You may be great at playing the guitar and creating songs or whatever it may be, but understanding the business side of this is, it's really complex, really complex. And I mean, Rich and I are entrepreneurs. We have a lot of we have a portfolio of ventures that we're developing and growing up and have successfully exited from some of them. This is complicated, heady stuff. Where does an artist, in practical terms, how do I learn about, you know, other than happening upon this podcast, which is wonderful, where do they learn about this stuff today? Yeah, it's a great question. Somehow we've put artists in this unenviable situation of, okay, you not only have to be a great artist, but you also now have to be a great business person. Right, right. Well, of course, of, but that doesn't work. You right. Can, you, you can't be both, <laughs> right. right? I mean, just, just sort of like, you know, opportunity cost, right? I mean, you can be a good artist and a good business person, but just, just at a pure opportunity cost, unless you really focus on one or the other, you're never going to be great. And it's a disservice to artists. But what we haven't been great at explaining is that there's a, a middle ground between saying, okay, I'm not going to know anything about the business. I'm just going to focus on being a guitar player and I'll leave it up to someone else. And the moment you do that, that someone else is going to see that information asymmetry. And as any business person would arbitrage it to their benefit and sure. just say, well, okay, I know the rules better than you. So I'm going to take advantage of it with self-interest. And that's precisely what the labels do. So artists too often think, well, either I have to 
do it all myself, which means I can't do it, or I have to sign to a label, which I'm just kind of axiomatically going to get screwed by. But there's a middle ground, and that middle ground, I think, is emerging much more slowly than I would like, but I do think it's emerging, where really savvy artists are partnering up with just a very small team, which could be one person who is, is acting. I mean, the whole role of manager, label, publisher is, is changing before our eyes, and you know, and I'm, I'm involved in all, all of those different comp- types of different companies and even trying to redefine what, what a label is. But if I'm a new artist right now, I find myself somebody that is deeply passionate about my music, somebody that's got some real good technical chops, meaning somebody that's, you know, not just a digital native that kind of understands YouTube or whatever, but, but somebody that can actually get in there and, and, and put together a, an Instagram ad strategy that understands what qualified leads are, you know, and, and really geeks out over data, but also happens to love this artist and, and is looking around the corner. I mean, it was amazing. I've been prattling on about TikTok for the last three or four years. No one listened to me until now it's all anyone can talk about. And I'm now prattling on about like, if you're an artist and you're not thinking about Fortnite and esports and mm-hmm. some of these types of things, right. you're just going to get left behind. Right. And labels can't do that. Just, just pure ass innovators dilemma. The incumbents just move too slowly for those types of things. So if I'm a new artist, I want to find someone like that much more than this sort of roll the dice of, you know, sign to some label and hope it doesn't work out well. And, you know, I often say to my students, I'll walk into the first day of class, 100 or so new Berkeley students, I'll say, okay, so how many of you all believe that that in order to succeed in the music business, you must sign to a label? And none of the hands go up. I say, how many of you all believe that if you were to sign to a major label, the, the contract would be fair and balanced? None of the hands go up. And then I say, if Jimmy Iovine or what name your A&R person of choice from a major label walked in here and wanted to sign you to a deal, how many of you, be honest, would would sign it in 80% of the hands. Sure. And the reason for that is because these artists have been through their whole lives outliers. They've not received the kind of validation that other people do, like sports people or whatever. And they're kind of looked sideways at by society as like, well, what are you wasting your time with that? And the only way that they can have that moment of feeling like, hey, I actually, this was worth all my time and effort and energy is by getting to call mom and say, hey, mom, Universal Records signed me. I'm a real artist. And the labels know this. They know that the dominantly what they are selling is affirmation. And that's why they will never change or need to change their contracts, which are horribly asymmetrical. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's also that a lot of artists just getting started, I mean, $10 is more than they have. A lot of them, you know, and, and so they, they don't, they're not looking at the big picture. They're not looking down the road. They're looking at where I am today which is I've got this great art. I want to get it out there. It's not being heard. You know, uh, I'm not being, you know, that affirmation. So the affirmation extends both commercial, I mean, not only to the mom and dad that you're trying to say, I'm doing the right thing. When you announce to them, you know, when they say, hey, honey, you graduated from college. What are you going to do with yourself? Well, I'm going to play my guitar and make money from it. Yeah, Yeah, right. And so that affirmation on a personal level is very important. But also commercially, I think a lot of artists say, wow, I get signed by Universal. You know, I'm going to be a commercial success as well, or at least have my best shot at it. Yeah, sure. And, but of course, that's not true, right? Yeah, no, of and, course and it isn't, right. And, right. And, but, and so that myth has been sold and propagated right. for a long time, right. and sometimes it does happen. Sure. And it happens just enough to keep other people... Believing that that's the path. Yeah, and willing to trade. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at major label deals, and I don't begrudge them. I mean, I've run big labels. They're taking on all the risk. But so the deals are necessarily lopsided. 
But I mean, they're essentially userist terms where if, if some label advances you $100,000 to pay for your record and marketing or whatever, and say, you know, we're still in the era of downloads, you would think that all you would need to do is have 10,000 mm -hmm. downloads at $10 a pop to pay back that advance. It's not true. You pay back your advance at your royalty rate. So you would pay it back at 10 cents on the dollar if you had a 10-point royalty. Right. So it would actually take you 100,000 records, right. which is a million dollars in gross revenue, right. to the label for you to pay back that $100,000. I mean, in, in any situation outside of the record business, that's, that's usury. That's loan shark. It's usury to any individual artist. But of course, the way the system is designed, the record labels have the scattershot approach where they're, you know, they're paying out 100 artists at 100,000 each. And two break, you know, or five break, and they've got to yeah, cover the cost sure. on, on all of them. So No, I, I get it. I mean, I understand, as, as I said, I understand they're taking all the risks. The labels are now making, I think I just read, something like a million dollars an hour yes. uh, royalties from that's the right. DSPs. I read that. And that's because they made contracts with these artists that granted the copyright to these artists' works for the life of copyright, which is 95 years. So when you've got that wide a swath and, and Spotify's operate on algorithms and all sorts of other things, you just dump everything in there. If you were really just trying to be mercenary about things and you were a label, you would literally fire everyone except for the people counting the money. Mm. And you just sign whoever, you know, sure. and just put it all into Spotify. And there are sure. people that are gaming Spotify up the wazoo right now. People that are just, anyway, I don't want to get too yeah, deep yeah. into it, but it's, you know, from the label perspective, it is, they've never had it better because they have this massive catalog of deals that, you know, were lopsided, that they didn't pay much for, that they thought were obsolescent assets that now they just put at scale out there and hope that some of them click into an algorithm. And, you know, Spotify's market share is growing. You've got India and China that's going to start coming on board. And even though Spotify can't seem to find a profit, you know, they're paying out this money. And so the major labels, it's, it's and that's why Warner's doing their, their IPO. It's brilliant. Right. And they now have predictable right. recurring revenue that's just going to go up. Right. And new platforms coming out all the time, too. Like, for example, Fan Label, who, you know, we were licensed by uh, all the major record groups as well. And there's a new way to consume music and engage with music, sure. which results in, you know, additional transactions and revenue stream back to those record labels right. and ultimately the artists. But it doesn't well. flow downstream to the artist. And that's why I do what I do. I mean, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I start my whole purpose in life is trying to help artists create sustainable careers on their own terms. And no scenario is a customer going to wake up and say, oh, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to pay Spotify more money this month. Sure. I mean, we, we're sure. certainly reaching, if not at, a sort of subscription fatigue, where if, if you get hit with one more $8.99 a month type thing, something's going to break, right? Yeah. And so the goal for me and my work is really focused on how do we expand the total addressable market for music use and consumption outside of these DSPs? You know, whether it gets into things like you know health or sleep or well-being or, or VR, all sorts of emerging technologies where, you know, there, there's revenue generative opportunities for artists that aren't crammed into the current existing structure that just doesn't benefit enough artists. Okay, well, you went right where I was going to go, and that is I was going to ask you if you'd name one or two things that you'd like to see happen in order to address some of the current conditions that you feel are yeah, as you've qualified them, usurious, unfair, difficult, complicated, you know, at varying degrees of, of not good, <laughs> you know, uh, for the artist. I know you, you just mentioned expanding the realm of possibilities for consuming music is one way to do it, esports, health, as you say, and so on. 
What about blockchain? How would that work for us? Blockchain has a set of attributes that I think are applicable to the music industry. I, I, I wrote the book, my most recent book about it. I've worked you know, with a lot of companies to develop certain protocols around it. In short, what it has the potential to do, and we're starting to see this actually come to fruition with some, some actual use cases around this is, but one of the first things it addresses is audit trail and transparency, right? So right now, it's really, really hard, as we started our conversation, just to kind of prove when a work is created, who owns the copyright. Blockchains by nature are known as immutable. So if I put a record up onto a blockchain, it can't be changed or altered. So you've got an audit trail. Additionally, you know, at least the spirit of blockchains is that they're decentralized, so they're not owned by one particular company or individual. The music industry, one of its big problems is you've got all these siloed databases, whether it's ASCAP, BMI, Harry Fox, none of them talk to each other, and most of those companies accrue their benefit from the, the kind of proprietary database. But blockchains are meant to be decentralized, so you know, think about MySpace. You know, when MySpace went down, it took a lot of artist assets mm -hmm. with them, right? Mm -hmm. That that shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But so a, a decentralized database that has immutable records on it provides an audit trail so that, that artists could be actually say, you know, no, this is my work and, and I can prove it right here. And oh, by the way, just because Universal Records gets sold to whatever conglomerate, I can still access my data. And that's that's really, really important. Um, the, the next kind of key element around blockchain is this notion, and, and, and I wish it weren't called this because well, uh, 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 smart contracts, which are prima facie neither smart nor contracts. What they are is a set of kind of if this, then that binary rules, and they're coded right onto the asset. So I don't, I don't know how deep you want to get, but like Bitcoin, for example, in order for me to transfer a Bitcoin to you, there has to be proof that, that I actually have this Bitcoin. And that when I transfer it to you, I'm also not trying to transfer the same one to someone else. Bitcoin addresses this by essentially putting a, a, a very complex puzzle, kind of like a Sudoku puzzle with a million squares in it, and that has to be solved before that can be transferred. So it validates that it's actually you know mine to give. And in the same way, you can put code onto a work and then say, okay, I, George, own this song, and I will allow someone to license this song for a specific price and for a specific use case if they satisfy x and y you know qualities once that's done it would then self-execute you would have a record of that and you would essentially disintermediate all of the people that are sitting in between that type of transaction right now whether that be labels publishers banks etc you'd then have a, a block added to the blockchain so you'd have line of sight on exactly what was happening to that work so that you could audit bad actors it doesn't obviate rule of law, but then you've got better evidence to kind of support the fact that you allowed for something to happen and somebody used it in the wrong way. So there's no way that I can summarize, you know, blockchain and everything else in a short period of time, but that's the general thesis. Okay. Wow. We could go on and on for hours. I think we've, we've pushed this, uh, but as far as we can push it today, you've, you've been so gracious and uh, generous with the information and your time. George, it was amazing. Really, really. I was dialed right in. Can't thank you enough. Anytime. Wow. Well, that was amazing, Rich. We just went to school on, you know, how the money flows. What, what were some of your, you know, key takeaways from the interview? So, Jeff, when we hear all of this, as is so often the case, you know, there is something called art and the purity of art. But as is so often the case, when you try to transform the art into the business side of it, 
there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of nuance and there's a, there are a lot of ways that things work. And, you know, there's a whole kind of infrastructure and machine behind all of these things. So it's really interesting to me that it's just, it's not simple, by the way, is it? There's a whole industry and infrastructure and, and methodology and what rights you participate in and what rights you share, you know, whether it's you or the performer or you as the writer, et cetera. So it's just, uh, it's a business, not just an art. It's a business and it's a complex business. You point that out. And I'm glad you highlighted that because, I mean, just think about the challenges of a new artist trying to break it. It's hard enough to really hone your craft, you know, as an artist, but to try to understand all of those complexities about the business side of this is really daunting. And, you know, I love that George wants to support breaking artists, uh, focus on that and really make it easier to digest and to be on top of from a business mm -hmm. standpoint is something that just has to happen. That does. Yes. And I will tell you too, what I found really fascinating was that kind of like psychology thing that he talked about where he talks to people in his classes uh, who are uh, budding or prospective artists uh, or writers and how many of them say they want to go in on their own, but the moment they get an opportunity to work with like a big label, for example, boom, they, they go for it. They go for it because that's what you do, right? Right. And it's validating. But I, I think too, I think there's something that I think is really important in business, but in certainly in the music business too, and that is to create momentum, to open doors, to create credibility I think one thing tends to lead to another in any business endeavor. And sure. I think it applies to the endeavor of art, of uh, the art of music too. That's a good point. And so there's just value. Once you establish one notable relationship, it would tend to be a door opener for other opportunities. The validation and the credibility that comes with signing a contract with a big name label or label group is, is, is powerful. All right. Great stuff. Let's move right on now from uh, that schooling we just had, which was incredibly valuable and enlightening, and, and move right on to having some fun now with Play the Music, the contest that we do on this podcast. Bridge, you won't be joining us today to do the song picking, but I've got my good friend and buddy, our good friend and buddy, Mick Breggy, who's going to jump right in. I have a great excuse to butt out because uh, I'm just kind of existentially concerned about my ability to win this week. So I'm leaving it to you guys with these five songs. You got it. Well, listen, especially concerning when you got Mick Breggy in the room. He's chasing us. All right, Mick, get in here. <laughs> hey, Mick, let's get right to, we, we took so much time with George, could have gone on and on for hours. Right. Uh, but now that we've gone to school, let's exactly. take a little break. Yeah, exactly. Let's um, cool off a little bit. We've been calling this the Fan Label 5. And, of course, the songs are the Fan Label 5, but the contest is play the music, play right? Play the music, right? And that means kind of, you know, play. let's hear some music, let's play the music, but also let's play it as a contest. Exactly. We're listening so, to these tracks and that's we're right. what's hot. So in this week's Play the Music contest, let's run through the five songs. Let's uh, let's start with the option number one, Blake Griffin. Mick? Yeah, this is a track by Young Maul uh, featuring Doughboy. So Young Maul is a 24-year-old rapper from Atlanta, and he just dropped Iceberg last year. And he's he was actually part of a duo with uh, Lil Quill, but he's doing his solo work now, and you can hear this right now. Right on. Song number two, option number two, not in any particular order here, just throwing them out there, five options, pick from any one of the five, is a song called I Do. Yeah, this is by Astrid S. and Brett Young. Let's hear it. And I try to have a drink, toss it back, I don't want to think. I really try not to miss you so, in the end. So, Astrid S., uh, she's a Norwegian singer-songwriter, actress, and model. A little bit of a renaissance person. She does a little bit of everything. And she's God, releasing her I debut album this year. Yeah, it's I a big sound. And she's released many tracks that have this kind of wide 
encompassing pop yeah. country sound. You I know, love I've it. said this before, but here is a perfect example of music discovery and fan label. Yeah. I don't know that I would have come across this song had this right. not been selected as a one of the fan label five exactly. for this contest. And this is an interesting tra- track, too, because it fits directly between the pop country categories. So Love it's it. a little bit harder to define. Love it. Song number three, option number three, Bittersweet. Yep, that's Leon La Havas. Okay. Leon La Havas. Let's have it. A little bittersweet. Leanne Le Havas is a British singer-songwriter, and this is her new song since she had her 2015 album, Blood. Okay, cool. Song number four, option number four, garden song, Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah, we love Phoebe Bridgers. neighbor goes missing, I'll plant a garden in the yard. Phoebe's an L.A.-based singer-songwriter. And you might have heard her other work from Boy Genius and Better Oblivion Community Center, two massive supergroups. I mean, Phoebe Bridger on her own is just tremendous I as well. I love this. Great love alternative this artist. Ah, love it. Love it. Love it. All right. Just got to get every moment of that we can. Yeah. Song number five, This Is How You Feel by Loot. is a New York-based duo that's Jackson Foote and Emma Block. So they have a history together with uh, writing their pop tracks. Aside from that, Emma Block wrote jingles for commercials and uh, children TV shows. Really cool. Great stuff. Those are the five options. Mick, you want me to go first? Or you yeah, why don't you first? go first? You know, again, this is always tricky because, you know, it's a choice between picking a song that you think will succeed or get the most streams, succeed the most commercially versus the one you like the most. I don't know. You know, I'm going to stick in the hip-hop category and go with uh, Blake Griffin. It's a good okay. track. So that Blake was Griffin. your choice last yeah. week, too. And I know. You stuck with hip-hop I know. and you lost. I know. So I are did. you sure you're going to want to lock this I down think, here? I think across the board, paying careful attention to the hip-hop category when it comes to streams today is just a smart strategy. Yeah, I like that idea, too. And I think Young Mall has a lot, enough momentum going on right now to make that a smart choice. So I'm actually going to choose uh, I Do by Astrid S. That was my favorite song. Yeah, that was the one that you liked. I so really loved it. This is a little tough for me because I know that Astrid S does really well, but I also really, really liked Bittersweet by Leon Mahavas. I think between those two, we have some competition there. So that's why I'm picking uh, Astrid S over Leon Mahavas. I think there's a little bit more momentum with this release. And I think this is her debut album as opposed to some of the singles that she's dropped. So it's going to be... It's going to be something for sure. It'll be a fun we'll contest. All right. Look forward to checking it. We'll, we'll report on the results on the next episode of Play the Music. All right. Let's, uh, let's go over the results of the Play the Music contest, the Fan Label 5 from the last episode. Mick, you are really doing well. I am. You are. Yeah, now, now, I've had nine first place picks. You have seven. Now, in fairness, in fairness, though, I think I've had a few more appearances on the show than Maybe you have. Four, four so or five you were, more episodes? That's Oh, Four or five. Yeah. I so think what so. Mick is suggesting here is that if he were, if we were an equal number of appearances, I've blown past you. Blown, you blown, okay, good. Just yeah. wanted, wanted to make sure that's where you're going with that. And indeed, let's check out how we did last week first. Is that sure. cool? Let's do that. Okay, let's do that let's because now Mick's on a roll here, bragging about his performance. Let's see how he did. I sure hope to hear let's some Tame Impala first. All right. Let's see how he did. All right. So last week's songs. Let's review them again. Is it true? By Tame Impala. There we go. 
Well, just no, wait. I'm just talking about Mick. I didn't say that finished first yet. All right? Jeez. <laughs> but indeed, we know how we do this. It did exactly. finish first. Let's hear it. A little Tame Impala. Ah, it's a great song. At least several great thousand of those are mine. Great song. For Listen, sure. Mick, I want to know, you are on a roll, okay? Uh, it's not easy for me to say that, but I'm saying it. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm saying it, now that it's out there, now that I'm past that, uh, what? why'd you pick that song? So it's a big record drop. Slow Rush has been doing really, really well. I mean, Tame Impala, we, we joke about it as being like one of the last big, big indie names right now. And that record that came out is charting fairly well for an indie underground record. Anyway, all right. You did pick Tame Impala. Is it true? 1,481,000 streams. And Mick, you picked the number one song in the the last contest. Now, song number two was a song called Conclusions by YG and Kalani. All right, that song had 1,163,000 streams, so about 300,000 less roughly. That's in the rap hip-hop category. I have to tell you, I... I was influenced by the fact that it was in the rap hip-hop category and thought it would beat out any song, no matter how good. And I love the right. Tame Impala song. But the Tame Impala song falls in the alternative genre. How can an alternative song beat a song in the rap hip-hop genre was my thinking. Exactly. Obviously, it was the wrong thinking in this particular case. Right, and I think it just depends on the artist in this case. I know we were talking a lot about this track with uh, Jimmy Bones. Uh, Trombley was on this last yeah. time about yeah. his son listening to uh, YG and that influencing his decision a little bit there too. Yeah. But you know what? Doesn't always have to be hip hop. And Tame Impala yeah. is big right now. Like yeah. I said, it's one of the last big alternative indie releases. Well, I have to tell you, I actually was going to go with Tame Impala, but as I walked into the studio last week, Mark Pastore, our engineer and our producer of the show, whispered in my ear, "Yeah, go with the hip rap hip hop song." Yeah, I remember so, that. That's why I didn't pick it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. Anyway, I think you guys are in cahoots. All right. Now listen. <laughs> Again, conclusions, 1,163,000 streams. I picked that song, as did uh, the great keyboardist Jimmy Bones Trombley. I mean, there's a guy that knows a thing or two, but so I don't feel so bad. Right. I don't feel so bad, okay? All right, song number three, Oh My God, Alec Benjamin, 986,000 streams. Song number four, Ohio, King Princess, 215,000 streams. Things drop off pretty significantly. And then uh, song number five was Love is a Fire, Brandy Clark in the country category, 22,000 streams. So there you have it. That's last go. week's contest. Now, before we go today, that was fun, Mick. Really yeah, fun. that was great. Before we go in the interviews in May, we learned some great things today. Hey, having fun and doing some learning. Can't beat that. You got any news for us on uh, any new features? And you want to report on fan label leaderboard uh, Sure. Players? Yeah, let's check out the leaderboard really quick. All right, so we're seeing some consistent leaderboard takedown this week. In the first top three slots, we got number one with Crystal CK again staying at the top. No flux at all this week with 1.2 million royalties. Number two, Potato Jams. That's Lana, 1.2 million royalties. And number three, TS Arbin. That's Tyler, 1.2 million royalties. So it's neck and neck. I mean, Amazing. all the top slots are in the 1.2 million right Amazing. now. Um, hey, hey and- we're going to be doing a feature soon. We're going to get the player, the actual players on. Yeah, on the podcast, and we're going to find out there. Maybe you know, maybe they'll share a little of their strategy. I want to know too, because I'm not doing so hot myself. Well, <laughs> you need you need to learn from Crystal. Exactly, I really do. And you know what? What else is going on right now in the marketplace? We have uh, Justin Timberlake's uh, Orange Hat royalty special. Snatch that up before it's gone. It's from his Man Man of the Woods release. It's a really cool hat. That is a cool hat, and it's bright. It's yeah. bright. Well, you don't have to get, you won't lose it. And we're going to start running a special where you can pay with no cash. Exactly. All royalties in these transactions. So play fan label, earn royalties to your label, spend them in the marketplace on really cool stuff. And, uh, and, and 
the only cash component is the shipping and handling, which is de minimis compared to the purchase price. It's an amazing savings. I mean, great stuff. Exactly. So as always, keep playing. Let us know if you have any comments or feedback. That's feedback at fanlabel.com. Reach out to us. We love hearing what you think. All right, right on. Thanks, Mick. All right, guys. Well, uh, it was a great show. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll be back next week with more on Play the Music. Before we sign off, we want to thank our production team, Kara O'Blenis, Kristen Kajawa, Damon Nalamathu, Ryan O'Blenis, and our engineer, Mark Pastoria. Download the Fan Label app from the Apple Store or the Google Play Store and play Fan Label today. Yeah.